Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. We're now into week six of our current sermon series on the kingdom of God, and hopefully we've begun to see how central the kingdom of God is to the biblical story. In Genesis 1 and 2, we saw the pattern of the kingdom, with God's people living in God's place under God's rule and enjoying God's blessing. In Genesis 3, we saw how the pattern of the kingdom was lost through Adam and Eve's rebellion. And then with Abraham in Genesis 12 to King Solomon in 1 Kings, we saw how God sought to form a people for himself once more, a people who would live in God's place, under God's rule, with the king God had chosen and so once again enjoying God's blessing. In the book of 1 Samuel, we read about that future king who would come, a king who would be the son of God, but also a descendant of David, a king whose reign would be eternal. This would be no ordinary king. Two weeks ago, we ended at the climax of Israel's history, that golden moment with King Solomon. But we noted that soon afterwards, Solomon strayed from the Lord, and so the kingdom disintegrated. What we didn't cover and didn't have time to cover at last week's All Age service is that God's prophets not only spoke a message of hope and encouragement, they also warned God's people to turn from their rebellious ways because otherwise God's judgment would come upon their sin. But as with Solomon, the people, and especially the kings who followed after Solomon, largely ignored the prophets and rebelled against God. And so God brought his judgment upon his people, and he dismantled what had brought, he had brought about. It was no accident. And so they were taken into exile. They, the whole nation are in exile by around 600 BC, although it happened in two stages because the kingdom which had once been unified became divided into a northern and southern kingdom with two separate kings. But even in exile, God still raised up prophets, such as Ezekiel, to bring hope and comfort and to call the people back to God, affirming His promises to them, and that there would be a good future if they were faithful to Him. In the period of around 540 to 440 BC, God brought back a portion of the exiled people to the land He had given under the leadership of men like Ezra and Nehemiah, whose accounts we can read in the Old Testament books under their name. To that small remnant of the nation, God also sent prophets, again to encourage and to warn. And the last of these was Malachi, whose book finishes off the Old Testament. And then, Mal and then from Malachi until the beginning of the New Testament, we have 400 years of silence. 400 years without any word from God, 400 years of waiting, until finally it is time for the arrival of Jesus and a new prophet is raised up in the person of John the Baptist, 
And following on from his ministry, Jesus appears. Mark tells us that when he began his ministry, Jesus proclaimed, The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. With these words, And it's echoed in each of the Gospels, though in different ways. But with these words, we are meant to see that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. As Paul will say in 2 Corinthians, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. We are meant to see that all the patterns and all the promises of Israel's history point to Jesus, are fulfilled in Jesus. And this is also true for the pattern of the kingdom of God. We're hopefully familiar by now that part of God's kingdom is a people who are His, and this was meant to be the people of Israel, descendants of Abraham a people who would reflect the character of God and His ways. But as we've just reviewed, Israel went astray, especially under the influence of their kings. And then Jesus comes and He says in John 15, I am the true vine, you are the branches. The vine was an image used by the Old Testament prophets to speak of Israel. And so Jesus is saying, He is the true Israel, together with any who are joined to Him. And so all who are in Christ are God's people, but they are so because of the faith they have placed in Jesus, because of the relationship they now have with Jesus. Similarly, with regards to God's place, that place where God would dwell with His people, The Apostle John, earlier in the same gospel, introduces it this way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. God came to earth and was found in human likeness. The Word became flesh, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, as the message puts it, moved into the neighborhood. The very presence of God dwelt among us in the person of Jesus. However, Jesus was not only the true Israel or the place of God's presence, He was also the true King in whose life the rule of God was perfectly seen. And in whose life, we also see the hallmarks of God's kingdom and of His blessing. Luke records for us these words of Jesus that He says at the beginning in the synagogue, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then He, that is Jesus, rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. 
The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Here are the hallmarks of the kingdom. Words first spoken by the prophet Isaiah hundreds of years ago, foretelling what the kingdom of God upon the earth would look like. That this is what it would look like when the reign of God came amongst his people, bringing his blessing through his promised king. And Jesus quotes these words and then says, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, saying that now they are fulfilled in him fulfilled through his ministry, and that ministry will affirm him as the promised king. But these are no empty words of Jesus. He will go on to fulfill them. In fact, in Matthew, we read of an incident where two men meet with Jesus. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they shouted, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them, and told them to be quiet, but they shouted all the louder, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus stopped and called them. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. Lord, they replied, we want our sight. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Immediately they received their sight and followed him. The blind saw the prisoners were set free. The Lord's favor, his blessing broke out amongst the people. Here then is the true king, that promised descendant of David, the son of God, the son of man, in whose life the rule and blessing of God are seen. So everything in the Old Testament prepared the way for Jesus acting as a signpost towards him, helping us to understand who he was and what he fulfilled, that in Jesus the kingdom of God is embodied and is in our very midst. And that foreshadowing of the Old Testament is captured by the writer of Hebrews time and time again. If you want, turn with me in the Pew Bible to Hebrews chapter 9. The focus here is primarily on the tabernacle, that place and symbol of God's presence amongst His people. In verses 1 to 5, the writer reminds us of its setup, and we briefly touched on this tabernacle a few weeks ago. Here in Hebrews, in verses 1 to 5, the writer gives us a quick reminder to get our bearings and prepare us for what he will say about Jesus. So we are reminded there of the setup of the tabernacle, the holy place and the most holy place, along with the, the furniture that was there to aid the ministry the priests would conduct. But then in verses 6 to 7, that limitation of access, that limitation of relationship, which we highlighted two weeks ago, is spelled out for us. We read, when everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, that is the most holy place, and only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed 
in ignorance. In reminding us of these limitations, the writer of Hebrews affirms for us the holiness of God and the seriousness of sin. That the sin of God's people created distance between God and the people. And this sin could not be overlooked by a loving, just, and true holy God. And so sin would bring the judgment of God upon the people. Sin was so serious that any entering into the most holy place, the presence of God, if they failed to follow God's stipulations, would bring instant judgment and instant death. And so only one person once a year could enter. There is then, as we said two weeks ago, a limitation of relationship. There still exists a degree of division, a degree of distance between the holy God and His people. The writer goes on in verses 8 to 10 to say that the Holy Spirit was showing something in the tabernacle by it being set up this way. We read, the Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. The Spirit of God, in giving these specific instructions for the layout and the structure and the workings of the tabernacle, was trying to communicate something, was trying to show the distance still existed even with the tabernacle because the conscience, the debt between humanity and God had not been fully overcome. There was a degree of relationship, but not full access and intimacy. But then, in verses 11 to 15, it all changes. And it changes because Jesus came. He came as a new high priest, one of greater stature, to stand before God on our behalf. And, when, and where he went, it was not to an earthly tabernacle, but to the heavenly tabernacle, to the very presence of Father God, to the very throne room of God. And he did not gain access there through the blood of an animal. No, he entered the most holy place in the heavenly realms by his own blood, his own perfect, sinless blood. So, because Jesus' priesthood and His sacrifice and the place of ministry are all greater, what He achieves is greater. He obtains an eternal redemption, an eternal freedom, a right relationship with God. He is then the mediator of a new relationship, a new covenant, ushering in that new dynamic between God and humanity of direct access. And so we see in the Gospels the temple curtain torn in two because Jesus died as a ransom to set us free from the penalty of our sins, that we might be forgiven once for all and have direct relationship and intimate access to God. All, all this 
was foreshadowed in the Old Testament, with the tabernacle being a, a kind of living parable, a living story of what God yearned for His people, but which was not feasible through the first covenant, which we call the Old Covenant or the Old Testament. And so Jesus came, and He fulfilled what had been foreshadowed. And yet when He came, so many people missed it. Even though they were steeped in its history and its symbolism and probably frustrated with its limitation, they missed it. They missed who Jesus was, what He meant, what He offered and achieved. And when He died and rose again, people still missed it. And they still failed to respond in faith. Friends, have you missed it? Have you been attending church all your life, going through the right religious things, just maybe like the Israelites, but missing it, missing the significance of Jesus? Friends, do you see who Jesus is? And does He captivate your heart? Because if Jesus appears meaningless, or if He appears irrelevant, or if Jesus doesn't fire you up with thanksgiving to God, you might have missed what He means and who He is. The writer of Hebrews was writing to a people who were giving their lives literally in death because of their faith in Jesus. To what degree have we grasped an understanding of Jesus that would fuel such faith in us? And this is a, a message for all of us, even the committee Christian. Does Jesus fire your faith? Or have you become a bit lukewarm towards Him? Because if you grasp Jesus, if you just see a minute part of who He is and what He has done, if you can appreciate that for what it's worth, you can't be lukewarm. But if you are lukewarm, maybe you've also missed it. Or maybe you've taken your eyes and your heart off of Jesus. Or something's got in the way. So have you missed it, friends? Have we missed Jesus and all that He embodies and offers? But you know, the people of Jesus' day also missed another crucial part of God's kingdom and of the mission of Jesus. They had forgotten that the, the promise to Abraham was also for the nations. God had promised the, this, you will be a blessing, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. We looked at this over the summer. We looked at this earlier on in the series. But the people of God had missed this. Even though the prophets would affirm it again and again, they missed it, or they ignored it. And so when Jesus came embodying the kingdom, it jars with people. 
because he tells stories like that of the good Samaritan. Sorry if I gave you a fright. <laughs> Sometimes we think this story is about simple good morals or just love your neighbor. But it was revolutionary in his time because Jesus was challenging people to realize that within the heart of God was a heart for the nations. The kingdom of God was not just about me, mine, and us. And that shocked and frustrated people of Jesus' day. For they couldn't see beyond themselves and they anticipated the Messiah would bring blessing for themselves. They missed that in the heart of God was a heart for the nations. Friends, have we missed this? Have we missed this aspect of the kingdom? Do you see in the example of the Good Samaritan that the way of the kingdom is to give of yourself for those around you who are without? Do you see that the kingdom isn't purely about me and you? It includes us. But it's not purely about what we get. The cross is the ultimate embodiment of this that God would give of Himself for rebellious humanity, that He would give Himself up for others before they can even think to reciprocate. So can I ask, friends, does this sound like you? Are you giving of yourself for others? We have a vacancy list. It's not in your order of service, but I had to put it somewhere to keep it safe. Um, if you want a copy, it's at the front and rear doors, but we have a vacancy list. We have roles that need filled so that people can see Jesus, meet with Jesus, receive from Jesus through the people of Jesus. Can I ask, are you playing your part? From the youngest to the oldest, are you playing your part? And if you think you're not, is there some way you could get involved? You might look at that list and you might think, well, Scott, there's nothing really on that list that ticks my box or uses my gifts or that I'm quite comfortable with. But if you think you need to step up, come have a chat with me. I will find you a job. <laughs> there's more than enough to go round. And you don't get to retire from the kingdom. Sorry. Doesn't happen. But we need everyone involved. Or what about the Alpha course that we're running just now? Did you invite anyone along? If you have a heart for the nations like God, then you might have. Even if they turned you down, I got turned down. But it's not too late, by the way, if you didn't invite someone. They can still come along this week. I probably wouldn't recommend after this week, but they can still come this week for the very first time, if in the next few days you invite them and they take up your invitation. Just two little examples of what it might mean to look beyond ourselves and to reflect the heart of God. For brothers and sisters, in Jesus, the kingdom of God came. He is the embodiment of God's people, His place, His rule, His king and His blessing. Have we missed this? Are we lukewarm towards Him? 
And do we see in Jesus the way of the kingdom also being embodied? That outward-looking, self-sacrificing, self-giving for the sake of the nations. Do we reflect that? Because what we have in Jesus is not just for us. As the writer to Hebrews at the end of verse 14 will say in Hebrews 9.14, the death of Christ is meant to change us so that we may serve the living God. Who are you serving? Who are you living for? Is it you or is it God? I pray we may all grasp Jesus afresh today and for the first time, or maybe for this time in this week, may our hearts be so captivated by Jesus that we live for Him, the one in whom is the kingdom of God. Let us pray. I want to give you a moment as our eyes are closed and we come before God just to be real with Him, to respond to Him with the things on your heart that have been maybe stirred up in these last minutes. Where is it God is calling you? What is He touching in your heart? Do you need to come back to Him? Are you lukewarm? Has something got in the way? Do you need to come to Him for faith the first time? Is there some way you need to play your part for the sake of the nation? You know, this morning I was praying in advance and the thing that came to mind was there might be some here who who are fearful. Not because of this message or anything, but other things. You have fear in your soul. You don't have peace. And I think God would want to say to you that He can bring you peace. He can bring you a deep, deep peace. And all through Jesus, because Jesus is God in the flesh, and He is here by His Spirit. If that's you, or if you want to talk with me about anything stirred up, please do after the service, or arrange to see me sometime this week. But let us come before God in prayer. Father, Thank you for your word. Thank you that your word is alive and active and speaks to the very core of our being, to our very heart. And for whatever has been stirred up this morning, Lord, bring your comfort or encouragement or bring your challenge, if that's what we need, that we may be your people in more than just words and ideas, but in the lives that we live. So come, lead us on, Jesus. For we are yours, and you are ours, and all because you live. This we ask in your name. Amen.